about the devil, whether you believe it or not. So Satan is real. Uh, Luke isn't worried about defending him or his identity. He's just telling you that he entered Judas. For Luke, he's really involved in the movements of men day to day. He's involved. Luke tells us he entered Judas. It's not quite the same language that we've got for demon possession elsewhere. It's hard to precisely pinpoint what's going on, what's happening. But it's pretty clear, isn't it, what Luke is saying, the message of what Luke wants us to get behind. Behind Judas's betrayal is not just Judas's own culpability, but the, the, the power, the control of the devil. Satan prompts him, he influences him, he drives Judas to betray Jesus. Judas has a, a, an ungodly intent and the devil is behind it. It's not complete control. Judas is complicit. Judas is willing. One commentator wrote, Judas opened the door to Satan. He didn't resist him. And Satan didn't flee. So responsibility for evil in this world. Why is there carnage? Why is there chaos? Well, there's evil men plotting and there's the evil one behind them. But we've got more. We're also introduced, aren't we, to... Judas. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. I don't know if we've got any Bob Dylan fans in the room. Don't have to. A couple of heads looked up then. Oh, Bob Dylan. Uh, in 1966, Bob Dylan was playing in the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. That's probably not very significant to many of you. But as he was uh, playing, particularly the second half, um, an audience member shouted out, Judas! It's on the recording. You can buy the album and you can hear him shout it out. Why? Why shout out at a rock star? Uh, Judas. Well, that's precisely the point. He'd become a rock star. Bob Dylan up until then was a folk star, a bit of a protest song hero. He was sort of wrapped up in the civil rights movement and writing uh, sort of sharp songs, but on an acoustic guitar. Uh, and then in the Newport Folk Festival, it all goes a bit wrong when he plugs in an amplifier and uh, starts upsetting everybody. So by plugging in amps, by plugging in electric guitar and starting to become a rock star, people thought he'd betrayed, he'd turned his back on um, folk music. There's a video going around on uh, Twitter at the minute of an Australian rugby fan shouting traitor, no, Judas at uh, Eddie Jones. A similar idea, isn't it? It's a, it's a name that we've got to throw at people who we say are on the wrong side. They've turned sides. Eddie Jones is an Australian. He's coaching England, and England won. You're a Judas. You're a betrayer. You've gone against us. So why that language? Well, this is why the language is in our vocabulary. This is why we call betrayers Judas, because of Judas Iscariot. Judas is betraying Jesus. There are a couple of reasons, perhaps, that we can draw together why he might have done it. We can't be too sure of his uh, complete motives. The point I really want to bring home today is that no one expected it. No one expected it. Look at the end of our passage. They began to question one another, verse 23, which of them it could be who was going to do this. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray us, they didn't all go, that guy's always been really shifty. Always been a bit suspicious about Judas over there. Whenever you see a picture of Judas, he looks really miserable, doesn't he? And really nasty and really sort of wizened and miserable. But they, they didn't think... It was Judas. Judas would have been part of the twelve. He would have been out preaching the gospel. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus sent them out two by two. They've been doing wonderful things. They've been casting out demons. They've been healing people in the power of Jesus' name. We've got no evidence to suggest that Judas wasn't part of that movement, wasn't part of that work. He's in. He's an insider. 
And so we haven't just got the Punch and Judy people, the obvious evil people, the baddies in this world. But we've also got someone who looks the part, who fits in, who belongs. It's a warning to us. The chief priests were easy to spot as enemies. The disciples didn't really want Jesus to go to Jerusalem. He's heading towards trouble. They knew they were opposition. It was obvious opposition. The Vladimir Putins of this world are easy to spot. But here we have one who's hard to spot, who fits in, who's able to turn up to church and say the right things and do the right things. But his heart was never really with Jesus, never truly belonged to him. And so he goes for the right price, he goes. He will be this key man that the um, enemies of Jesus need to betray him. He gets the money and Jesus gets arrested. So there we go, as a bit of a recap, who's responsible for evil in this world? Well, evil men, obvious bad guys doing evil things, we know. A Satan is behind it. But we're all impacted, aren't we? There's none of us who do right. Sin is in all of our hearts. And there's a degree to which, although we're not all Vladimir Putin, there's a degree to which we're all responsible for evil and chaos and carnage in this world. We might have a smaller degree of influence. Might be the pain that we might have caused in a, a family or a particular relationship or a setting. Or a lot of it may stay personal, may stay within and hidden, known only to God. But we're responsible for evil too. Okay, secondly, what is Jesus doing when the world is going wrong? If you're able to follow the big picture of the story of the Bible, Jesus is God's son that's been put in this world, sent to this world to rescue and redeem it. So if we've seen evil... It would be interesting to know what Jesus is doing while these people are plotting evil and doing evil. Why isn't he putting a stop to it? Why isn't he going into these secret rooms and going, you can cut that out when you like. I'm not doing that. Killing me is not a good idea. Why isn't he speaking to Judas? One of you will betray me. Why isn't he stopping that? Judas, don't betray me. Don't go out tonight. Stay with us. Verse 6 sets... Uh, the drama. There's a plot against Jesus and the price for Jesus' head has been given. The missing piece of the plot is in place and now it's only a matter of time. Now Judas has turned sides. It's sort of the push of the final domino that's going to hit the rest of the dominoes over. It won't be long until Jesus is dead, nailed to a cross. So what's Jesus doing while all this is going on? Seems strange. With all of that drama, Building up, Jesus heading towards his enemies, and now his enemies got the missing piece of the puzzle to kill him. Then Luke tells us all about Jesus arranging a meal. I'm going to go to this room and uh, sort it out. Get the chairs ready, get the plates set up. It's really bizarre. People are plotting for his death, and we've got these instructions about a meal. What we find Jesus doing here is preparing his people to remember God's salvation. I want to get you in a room and I want you to remember that God saves. I want you to remember that the dark times in Egypt were the end for Israel, that God redeemed them and rescued them. And I want you to show you that that meal points to me and the rescue that I'm able to bring. The Feast of the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the two acted together as sort of multi-sense reminder of God's great rescue of Israel and Egypt. I can remember going somewhere with our kids when they were younger, and we were told we were going to go and see not a 3D film, but a 4D film. 
I had no idea what was awaiting me as I went into it. I'd seen a 3D film before. We've got sort of glasses on and things sort of popped out a little bit. A 4D, what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is someone's going to squirt water on you. That seemed to be the extent of the fourth dimension was that when it rained, someone had a water gun somewhere and you were getting wet. The multi-sensory, we can sort of sense different things. We're seeing a film, we're hearing it, and then you can feel bits uh, happening. You can feel some of the uh, things going on. Well, this meal is a multi-sensory reminder. They're seeing the lamb, the lamb that was sacrificed in their place, in the place of the oldest child of the family. That lamb, instead of me, a substitute, God killed the lamb, or we killed the lamb, and, and God saw that as okay, passed us over. And seeing the bread, seeing the, the hurry, the sustenance that God was given them, but the meal that needs to be made and to travel quickly. Tasting these things tasting the bitter herbs, being reminded of their bitter period in slavery, celebrating with the wine, rejoicing in God's salvation and his goodness and kindness to them. It's a feast, it's a celebration. The crowds have drawn together and now that the crowds have dispersed into family gatherings, Jesus is bringing his new family together. We have this interesting interaction between Peter and John where they're giving instructions for making preparations. Jesus' instructions are really clear and easy to follow. And they follow, and they find it just as Jesus said. Again, it seems a strange little detail for Luke to keep in. There's been another one of these about a donkey earlier on as he enters into the temple. He'll find a donkey and bring it back to me. And if they say anything, just say, the master needs it. It's a donkey. Just give it to him. And it all seems to be part of Christ's control. He's not going into this lion's den of opposition with his eyes closed. He knows where he's going. If he knows about the donkey in the field, if he knows about this room, it gives us a sense of his control. These events are not catching him off guard. He's walking very deliberately into these steps, even into danger. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He's determined to be there. At the end of the meal, we're given another indication of this control. He knows who's going to betray him. He knows what's going on. Jesus fully realizes his time has come, that the noose around his neck is tightening. He knows that these are his final days, and this group will soon be scattered. The shepherd will be struck, and the sheep will head off. Knowing that, As they are looking at him, one of them will betray him. One will deny ever knowing him. And the rest will uh, flee in fear. And knowing all of that, knowing about their rejection, knowing about their weakness, knowing about their cowardice, he wants this meal. He makes this meal a priority. It's extraordinary, isn't it? What would you do if you'd heard that you were about to be betrayed? Someone who you thought was a friend, someone who you thought loved you and had your back, was actually plotting behind you. And then you were face to face with them. Or someone who was about to let you down, someone who was about to run away from you. How would you behave if there were people plotting for your life? These are the extremes of human emotion, aren't they? And the Jesus that we're presented with in the Gospels isn't some superhuman. 
isn't someone who's pretending to be like us, but someone who is really like us, with real human emotion, who knows what it is to grieve, who knows what it is to hurt. But in the chaos, and in the cruelty, that chaos and cruelty, which isn't just abstract, but is now on him. People are betraying him. People are after his head. All of the heat of Satan's army is against him, God's son. And in that context he's looking to serve these people jesus is calm he prioritizes this meal and these men the time of the meal comes and he reclines with them i have earnestly desired to eat this passover with you before i suffer i've been longing for this i've been waiting for this i've been waiting for this climax i've been waiting for this moment to be with you jesus isn't just going through the motions of um a religious observance. We can do that sometimes, don't we? When we break the bread and we drink the cup because, well, I've been here before. This is what I do. This is what we do. And then we go out and we'll have a tea and coffee afterwards. Now, Jesus is he's, he's in. He's passionate about the observance of this meal, of what these, these symbols mean, of what it teaches. And he's desiring to be with these people, to celebrate this meal and to praise God together with these people. This meal has meaning, and it always has had meaning, and Jesus is now changing it and twisting it. He's giving it all new meaning again. He's telling them, this meal is all about me. This meal that you've celebrated for hundreds of years is actually getting you ready and prepared for me. But Jesus is not just seeing his death coming up, is he, but seeing his kingdom. He's able to tell them that I, I won't drink of this cup again until my kingdom comes. He's convinced of his victory. He's not just entering death, but he's going to conquer death and beat it. And uh, these individuals are going to run off. He's, he's conscious of their restoration. He knows they're going to scatter and flee, but you continue to do this in remembrance of me. He's laying down here teachings for them that is after their betrayal, after their compromise, after their cowardice. He's got grace enough to speak to them about this. Rather than trying to protect himself in the midst of this plot, he is preparing these men. He's serving them. He's teaching them. Well, you might not think we've um, answered our question yet. What is God doing when the world goes wrong? But we're getting there. So that's our final question, our final point. What is God doing when the world goes wrong? Verses 16 to 23. We've seen that Jesus is remarkably calm and composed where these evil men are plotting to take his life. How can he do that? How can he be that calm? How can he be collected as he's facing death? Well, the answer is found in the meal. The meal gives us the answer to what is God doing when the world goes wrong? When I turn on my news and it looks like chaos and it looks like carnage, where is God? When I don't have to turn on the news... When my own life is already chaos and already carnage and already pain and hardship, where are you, Lord? When you're going through a day that makes you feel a little bit closer to Job and all the things that were taken from him, and you're crying out with Job, why? Where are you? What are you doing? Verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. The suffering that Jesus is approaching has been determined. It's, it's part of the plan. There's a divine plan that's been hatched out in heaven between Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Son now, his part and parcel, is delivering that plan. 
The suffering that Jesus is approaching has been determined. And so God is behind, not responsible, but over and above even the evil in this world. The evil is a rejection of him, of his character. It's the opposite of who he is. God is altogether loving, altogether good, altogether kind. And so when we see evil in the world, it's a rejection of him. It's the outcome of what happens when we turn our back towards God. And yet that evil doesn't defeat him. God is sovereign. He's above it. And so able to even use wickedness in this world to bring about his purposes. As wicked men lay their wicked hands on Jesus, the hand of God is behind it all, bringing about good. God is using the evil in the world, the betrayal of an insider, even the evil of the devil to bring about his purposes. None of them are able to stop what God is doing. They think their opposition is hurting Christ, winning, harming his cause. But actually it's been used by God to bring about his purposes, to achieve his great aim, to fulfill the plan. And the plan is to save the world. Save men and women and boys and girls like you and me by the body and blood of Christ. Sometimes when we think about saving the world, we think about Superman or Spider-Man or some other Marvel hero doing it. Those types of superheroes could fix Putin, don't they? They often do in the movie. They take out the bad guy eventually. It always annoys me when I'm watching superhero films. That they seem very, cap- seem very incapable, no, very capable at the start. Yeah, they're doing all sorts of wonderful things that no one else can do. And then they're really incapable in the middle. They don't seem to be able to do the tricks they were just doing in the first ten minutes. And then all of those wonderful tricks that make them able to save the world are back again towards the end. When they need... Sorry if I've just ruined all the superhero films for you. Anyway, that's what they seem to do, isn't it? But they always uh, win the day. But God in his infinite win- wisdom is, is, is not just taking out a Putin, not just taking out the evil leaders... He's not sniffing out the evil that we often spot. We were saying at the beginning, we? we can spot evil men doing evil things. He's not just dealing with that. And neither is he just dealing with Satan. He is doing that at the cross, but he's not just doing that. He's not just winning that victory, good over evil. Also, he's bringing in everybody else. He's finding a way to deal with the evil that's in our hearts. That penetrates not just the big guys and the bad guys, it penetrates all of us. The, the sin that is set into every human heart, God is finding a way to redeem and rescue the whole of humanity. That anyone and everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. That there's a future in this world, a new world, a new heaven, a new earth. All of that centers on Jesus. All of it centers on his perfect life, his living the life that we've not lived. All of it centers on his substitutionary death, him dying the death that we deserve to die. All of it centers on his glorious resurrection, God raising that Jesus from the dead, conquering sin, conquering the Satan, conquering death. And Christ is bringing the hints of that now, isn't he, in this meal. This meal was about history and now it's about tomorrow and tonight. It's about Good Friday. It's about Easter Sunday. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to die. I'm going to be risen again. And I'm coming back.
And so this meal was a memorial meal for Israel. The lamb was slain as a substitute for the firstborn son of Israelite families. The lamb had died in his place. And as Jesus takes hold of this meal, he makes clear that he is the lamb. He is the substitute. Here in the carnage that evil causes, God is working to save. In the person of his son, who is willing to be betrayed, willing to be falsely accused, beaten and killed, that through his death, people like us can come and know God. Jesus' death wasn't the end. The evil plot didn't win. God raised him from the dead. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this evening, there'll be no lamb there. Because the lamb is in glory. The lamb has been risen. There is no more bloodshed. Christ's blood has been spilt once and for all. The price has been paid. And so the great question to ask is, now we've seen what God is doing in an evil world, he's working, working to save, working to redeem, working to reconcile, to bring people like us back to him. Have you come to him? Have you taken hold of that? Can you see that in a passage like this, in the middle of a storm that this evil world is able to whip up, that Christ is displaying his love for a world that hates him? Can you see the extent of God's love to work a salvation plan like this for people so undeserving, people who are wicked? Well, that salvation was for people like you, people like me. You can belong to God because of this Jesus. You can walk with him. You need to let go of all of your self-reliance and self-confidence and put your trust in Jesus. Turn from the sin that's within. Turn from that problem that separates you from God and take hold of Christ. Don't try and wash yourself clean. Don't try and get yourself right, but come to one who can cleanse you from inside out. And recognize that belonging to God isn't going to stop the evil. Not in the short term, anyway. No one belonged to God like the son belonged to God. He is the focus of evil in this world. And Christ says those who follow him are likely to get very similar treatment that he got. The world hated me, it's going to hate you too. But in this world, in evil and darkness, we'll have an answer to that question, who is in control? Who is on the throne? And it's part of our faith to remember all that God has done in the past. And then to express that faith in confidence and trust that whatever the news says, and whatever's happening in my circumstances, that I trust him to keep his word to bring me safely home. I've got someone who's got a a purpose for my life, someone who's got a direction. That doesn't promise me comfort. But it does promise me his comfort. Because he cares for me. Because he loves me. Someone who knows me inside out and yet isn't going to rebel, isn't going to wander away, isn't going to leave me. Someone who's able to use the wicked intent of human hearts and the twist in plans to bring about his own good purposes. So we can work for justice in this world confidently. Because we know our God is a God of justice who one day will bring justice, true justice. 
one who will wipe every tear. We don't have all the answers. But we do belong to one who does. And he will make all things new.